You're about to see God rescue the killers in this story. You're going to see in the story of Joseph a perfect foreshadowing of Jesus. In this book that was written roughly 1,700 years prior, you're going to see the story of Jesus foretold and foreshadowed with such striking parallel that the only logical conclusion is that the word of God is inspired, that it is true, that you, my skeptical friend who's never really taken the Bible seriously, have been completely underestimating this book. And my earnest prayer is that if you have underestimated this book or dismissed entirely the Old Testament, attempting to, to unhitch your understanding of Christianity from its foundation in the Old Testament, that you would, with fear and trembling, as the Spirit of God works upon your heart, open the Word of God, read it for yourself, and see the beautiful truth that this is breathed out by God. That every word of this book is inspired by the Holy Spirit of God. This is, this is a double-edged sword able to divide soul and spirit, joints and marrow, judging the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. We've arrived in chapter 37 in our study of the book of Genesis. Let's go there together. As a word of context, our curriculum for student ministry groups and for adult groups looks at verses 5 through 11 in this chapter and verses 19 through 27 in this chapter. And this sermon will cover the pericope, the larger context. We've been studying the story of the patriarchs thus far as we work our way between the pulpit, the curriculum, and the reading plan, verse by verse through the book of Genesis. The story of the patriarchs has come up. We've seen Abraham. We've seen his son, Isaac. We've seen Isaac's son, Jacob, whose name is changed to Israel. And now we get further acquainted with some of Israel's sons. They are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and then Benjamin. These are also the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. It's striking. These same names whom we meet here in person in Genesis later come to represent the tribes of Israel who are at work through the whole Old Testament and then even come back in the book of Revelation. These same sons of Israel come back in Revelation. Dan, the tribe of Dan in judgment for God is missing from the catalog of the 12 tribes as a revival breaks out among Jewish believers in the end times as prophesied in Revelation. Joseph's name is likely changed to Manasseh at that, at that later reiteration of it. But these patriarchs of the 12 tribes, the progenitors of each of the 12 tribes, they tend to forecast by their personalities the attributes of the given tribes. And it's, it's interesting to see personified these allocations of the promised land to Israel and the way that they mistreat one another in real life. Esau, Israel's twin brother, who was older and actually traditionally more entitled to the birthright, but because of God's sovereignty, he forgoes that birthright. He leaves behind the land that was promised to Abraham, but Jacob remains in it, according to Genesis 35, 1 and 2. And Israel, of his sons, favors Joseph particularly. 
Some of this is because Joseph is the son of his only truly beloved wife, Rachel. And he gives Joseph this ornate robe, which in that culture symbolized authority. Now, of course, Israel, whose name originally was Jacob, of course, he would be into the idea that the younger brother would be in charge of the older brothers because he was the younger brother who was in charge of his own older brother. And he, I believe, sparks the flame that grows to the inferno of dysfunction in this family because of his overt favoritism, favoring Joseph over his brothers, giving him outright this symbol of that favoritism in this ornate coat, which set him apart from his brothers, not only in his office, but also by virtue of his very class. It's as though he deemed his son Joseph, the younger, spoiled baby brother of the family, ruler over everybody, saying he is to be the white-collar ruler over his blue-collar brothers. And then he sends Joseph out to hold his older brothers accountable and report back to Israel on their performance as shepherds as they look after Israel's livestock. So much of this dysfunction begins with that, that overt favoritism that Israel shows to Joseph. We can see at the end of the book of Genesis, as Israel is speaking about each of his sons and naming each of them, you can see this final word over, over all of them, and you can see how, it's, how fitting and perfect it is. Last week, we studied as Simeon and Levi just laid waste to the whole city of Shechem. Here are Joseph's final words about Simeon and Levi in Genesis 49, 5 through 7. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. Here is what... Israel then spoke over his son, Joseph. Genesis 49, 22 through 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough by a spring. His branches run over the wall. The archers bitterly attacked him, shot at him, and harassed him severely, yet his bow remained unmoved. His arms were made agile by the hands of the mighty one of Jacob. From there is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. By the God of your father who will help you, by the Almighty who will bless you with blessings from heaven above, blessings of the deep that crouches beneath, blessings of the breasts and the womb, the blessings of your father are mighty beyond the blessings of my parents, up to the bounties of the everlasting hills. May they be on the head of Joseph and on the brow of him who is set apart from his brothers. Do you think there's favoritism in this family? These are his final words over his sons. Some of them are descriptive of a life lived and some of them are prescriptive and prophetic. See the sovereignty of God over each of the tribes of Israel and you can see the tribes of Israel personified by their respective progenitors. But I like Joseph. I think you will too as we study the text together. I like Joseph. He never compromises or complains ever. Like whether he is speaking the truth to a fellow prisoner or speaking the truth to Potiphar, he does not compromise the truth. He does not mitigate the truth. He just says exactly what the Lord is saying, gives all the glory to God. 
Watch the beautiful parallels, the stunning foreshadowings in Joseph's life and especially in Joseph's afflictions as they point forward to Jesus. You're going you're to see plainly from the text that Joseph is a foreshadowing of Christ. That this book of Genesis foreshadows the story of Jesus. Let's look at Genesis chapter 37 together. It's page 31 of the Bibles in front of you. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy when the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah were Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars were bowing down to me. Okay, Joseph, shut your mouth. That's in the Jesse Campbell translation, not the, not the actual Bible. <laughs> but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come and bow ourselves to the ground before you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they don't know that yet. And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Interesting to me. Joseph secretly gave credence to, or Jacob secretly gave credence to Joseph's dream, but he wanted to appear to rebuke Joseph. And some of this could have been to keep Joseph's ego in check. Some of it could have been to save face in front of his other sons who clearly did not respect Israel's actual authority and whom he should have reigned in and, and kept in check. But it's interesting, it's interesting that he would, he would appear as though he's rebuking Joseph, but secretly, secretly believe there's truth in that dream. Verse 12, now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, here I am. So he said to him, go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem, and a man found him wandering in the fields, and a man asked him, what are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, they have gone away, for I heard them say, let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. All right, that passage seems purely transitional in nature. It sounds like it's just pure logistics, but I believe there's more. 
I really believe there's more. I believe that's there intentionally. Okay, don't read those verses and say like, so Joseph pulled out his phone and navigated and saw that there was traffic on 405 South and selected an alternate route. Like, there's more to this than logistics. It really is. There's more, there's a foreshadowing of the gospel itself. I know that sounds like an overpromise until you know what the names of these cities mean. There's Joseph in fellowship with the father. And his father wants to look after his brothers who are in Shechem. And he sends Joseph out and Joseph says, here I am. Doesn't that remind you of the prophet Isaiah? Here I am, Lord, send me. It's these beautiful gospel foreshadowings. It's, it's incredible to me. And did you know that the, the name Shechem, the word Shechem, the city where everything went down, where last week's slaughter and massacre took place, all this is named for the place of burdens. That's what the word Shechem means. It's the place of burdens. And so there's Joseph in fellowship with his father and Hebron, and then he runs into some nameless dude who redirects him to Dothan. And the name Dothan means laws and customs. Joseph is there in fellowship with the father. Here I am, send me to the brothers who are shepherding the flock at the place of burdens. And he goes to them and finds that now they're at the place of laws and customs. Jesus is there in fellowship with the father and is dispatched to look after the brothers who are shepherding the sheep. They're burdened with laws and customs when he arrives. The false teachings that pervaded during the days of Jesus took the Ten Commandments and added onto them 613 other laws and customs. These were collectively known as the mitzvah. And they were chained around people's necks like they were the very laws and customs and teachings of God. So the people were heavily burdened with these extra biblical laws and customs. This is exactly what Jesus found. Jesus was sent from the fellowship of the Father to help carry the weight of his brothers, but then when he arrives, they're burdened with laws and customs and they want to kill him. Joseph, likewise, goes to his brothers and look at the very next verse. They saw him from afar and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. My skeptical friend, my orthodox Jewish friend, Jesus is alive, and his spirit inspired this word. If you haven't been reading your Bible, you haven't been breathing. Look at this beautiful, exquisite truth. See the gospel foreshadowed. See how deep the roots of the New Testament salvation go, all the way back to Genesis. How rich is the legacy of the salvation and the grace in which we abide as spoiled New Testament believers, bathing in grace, Here's how far back the story goes. Look at verse 19. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we'll see what becomes of his dreams. Spoken like true Disney villains. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. 
So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming up from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. You see the myrrh? Like my son Ace will tell you, the wise men brought Jesus, gold, Frankenstein, and myrrh. The myrrh is significant. Myrrh, when it's crushed, releases a fragrant aroma. And the letters to the churches, the opening chapters of the book of Revelation, we see that the church at Smyrna, named for myrrh, would undergo persecution, undergo further persecution, but the result would be a fragrant offering to the Lord. It was prophetic to bring to Jesus, the one who would be crushed for our sins, myrrh. He would be that fragrant offering to atone for the sins of all who believe in him. Also, do you see the parallels between Joseph and Jesus in this, that Joseph likewise goes to Egypt, that Jesus likewise goes to Egypt as a young boy? All this was prophetic. All this was foreshadowed. Look at verse 26. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our own hand be upon him for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by and they drew Joseph up and lifted him up out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, the boy is gone and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, this is what we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And they identified it and said, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Joseph tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, no, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an office of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Let's go back and look at this text piece by piece because there is gold just a spade's length into the ground. If you just dig it up, you can see the beautiful treasure that's here in the very inspired word of God. All right, we've looked at verses 1 through 17. We've seen some of the parallels there in the nomenclature of the townships and how that more parallels to Jesus' ministry. Now let's look at the people. Let's talk about Reuben. Look at verse 21. He's the oldest of Israel's sons. When Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, let us not take his life. Reuben tries to be at peace with his own murderous brothers and with his little brother and with his father. He tries to be at perfect peace with everyone, including the murderous mob. That's, that's his endeavor. That's his hope. I see striking parallels between Reuben in this story and Pilate in the Gospels. Pilate, likewise, 
has this opportunity to sort of mediate and almost call off the sham of a trial, the miscarriage of justice that is Jesus' formal accusation, tries to put Barabbas forward, that they might go for Barabbas instead. And in the end, asking a question that I believe was serious, what is truth? He physically, literally washes his hands, trying to absolve himself of all guilt in the matter. He tries to be at peace with the mob and trick them. He's disingenuous towards his brothers, pretending to be on their side while trying to rescue his brother, and it does not work out for him. It blows up in his face. Are there any Rubens in the room? Any Rubens? Are you, are you trying to be totally at peace with the murderous mob even? And trying to say, yeah, I'm one of you guys. I'm with you. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, let's sell him. Secretly, going to come back, get him out of the pit, bring him back to dad. Like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to masquerade like I don't really love the son. I'm not really a Christian. I don't really hold to these values. I'm, I'm in covert ops here. I'm trying to win people over, not with integrity, but with a face that I put on, a non-Christian face. I'm going to compromise on every issue in which Christianity overlaps with politics. Uh-oh. So that I can be found more acceptable in this realm. I want to be a perfect compromise of the truth itself. I can have it all. I can be at peace with a sinful world and compromise my conscience and still be devoted to the forsaken son. Pilate, likewise, wanted to be at peace with the murderous mob and at peace with Jesus himself. And it doesn't work. It's not possible. You can't have it. Look at 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's not actually possible to just sit there minding your own business, quietly leading a holy life and never, ever, ever be confronted on the matter. Because your holy life, the light of the gospel that is emitted through your testimony, makes everybody uncomfortable. And it reminds sinners of their sin. You didn't pick this fight, but you're a part of it. Understand that. There are times when you, like Daniel, must defy. You must defy. You cannot, you cannot, and you ought not masquerade and be disingenuous and try to compromise your testimony. What can light have in common with darkness? The only way that a city on a hill with a blinding gospel light bringing people from death to life can ever be at peace with the darkness around it is to dim the light or snuff it out completely. Everything blows up in Reuben's face and he's worried about himself. Now, I, where will I go? Now, in chapter 42 of Genesis, we see Reuben again. And he's almost in the exact same situation. Only this time, instead of the baby boy being Joseph, the baby boy is Benjamin. And now, Reuben is in a similar dilemma. You can imagine how eerily familiar it all felt to Israel when Reuben is explaining, I promise I'm going to bring your son back to you, your baby boy back to you. He almost gets the chance to redeem himself for failing to bring Joseph back this time when we arrive in chapter 42 of Genesis later. But I'm struck by the stunning parallels between Reuben and Pilate. I'm also struck by the depravity of the brothers. Look at verse 25. They've just put their brother in an empty pit. And then text 20, verse 25 says, they sat down to eat. They sat down to eat. They sat down with some Chick-fil-A. Just abandoned their, their little brother in a pit and then sat down to eat some Chick-fil-A. What is, what is wrong with these guys? Like, how hard-hearted are they? Can you be, can be totally honest for a second? 
before we pile on to these brothers and their wickedness, is there anybody in the room who's just really comfortable with your sin? You can commit a flagrant sin against God and then like sit down and have a meal with a clear conscience? That's a problem. Like if you're that comfortable in your sin that you can flagrantly disobey God and do something you know is patently wrong and then sit there and abide in it and not have any conviction in your heart, not feel the Holy Spirit drawing you to repentance, if your heart is that hard, watch out. You are in a dangerous place. It is a dangerous place to be. I will say to you, if you profess to know Christ, but you've never been convicted for sin, you've never actually repented from sin, you've never actually done the will of God, there's no Holy Spirit's presence in your life, you're not bearing any fruit, you're not actually doing God's will, you're not saved. If you're that comfortable in your sin, you're not saved. If you're a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit of God living within you, when you do sin, you're drawn to repentance from that sin. The Holy Spirit of God will ruin the long-term fun of sin for you. You will be miserably convicted and drawn to repentance, and you cannot abide there. You cannot remain there. Look, not everyone who says to Jesus, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Only those who do the will of his Father. And this is how we know that we're in him. He has given us of his Spirit. It's a deposit, a down payment on our hearts, guaranteeing our future with him. If you have the Holy Spirit of God, he will convict you for sin. So if you're feeling convicted, and the Chick-fil-A, beautiful, blackened chicken, bacon, club, pepper jack, cheese, just turns to ash in your mouth. Jesse, don't talk about Chick-fil-A on Sundays. That is mean. If you can't enjoy your sin, I'm not glad that you're miserable, but I'm glad that you're saved. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not rejoicing, I'm not gloating over the fact that anybody's miserable in their sin, but that conviction drawing you out of that sin, drawing you to repentance, that is the Holy Spirit of God. That is a divine, blessed misery. To be miserable in your sin is a good thing. To be comfortable in your sin is a bad thing. Furthermore, do you see the other parallels between this story and that of Jesus? The Pharisees were in a hurry to crucify Jesus, and then, okay, take him down off the cross, Get this whole crucifixion scene torn down because we need to go eat the Passover meal in recognition of the Messiah. <laughs> I'm so struck by the, by the irony of that. Like, we need to go eat unleavened bread. Get this all torn down. Like the unleavened bread represents the Messiah you just crucified. They were in a hurry after murdering the Messiah to sit down and eat. Now this may be trivial, but I'm also struck by the ignorance of these these brothers, they don't, as they talk about selling their kin to the Ishmaelites who are passing by, they're related to the Ishmaelites. They're related to the Midianites. Ishmael was another son of Abraham through, and, and through Keturah and Midian. He bore these descendants, these travelers by. In Genesis 25, verses 1 and 2. Look at verse 27. Come, let us sell him. I've seen this story pointed to as a justification for the idea that the Bible approves of slavery. That is ignorant hogwash. Let me show you what the Bible actually has to say about slavery. This very practice would be overtly and drastically condemned by Mosaic law. Here's what the Bible actually says on the matter. Here's Exodus 21, verse 16. (laughs) Begin with just the fact that the book is called Exodus. Exodus 21, 16. Whoever steals a man and sells him and anyone found in possession of him shall be put to death. Deuteronomy 24, 7. 
If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel, and if he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. This is how God actually feels about this practice. This is how God actually feels about this issue. And did you know that this is not a bygone issue? Human trafficking still exists today. And God's heart on this matter has lost none of its potency. It is Super Bowl Sunday. You know that the Super Bowl itself serves as this catalyst where human trafficking happens all around it. There have already been numerous busts in the previous week of human trafficking incidents taking place around the Super Bowl. God help us, God have mercy, God bring about repentance and you, Christian, likewise, consider ways in which you might contribute to eradicating this common practice that still pervades today. I can't read a story about brothers selling their brother into slavery and not acknowledge the fact that that same crime still happens in our culture. Look at verse 31. Verse 31, they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in blood. This is, this is the definition of, of irony to me. Jacob himself used a slaughtered goat to deceive his father, Isaac. He put the goat skin on his arms to come across as hairy as his brother Esau, so his blind father, Isaac, would feel the hair on his arms and think that he was Esau. And now, now here is Jacob, renamed Israel, being deceived by his own sons with a slaughtered goat. Do not be deceived. Your sin will find you out. Look at his sons. Look at how they run rampant. Look at what's happening. Did you catch verse 28 as well? Let me back up a second. Did you catch, did you, did you notice that another parallel between Joseph and Jesus? That Jesus was forsaken and sold by Judas and Joseph was forsaken and sold by Judah. Judah, Judas. I mean, I'm not playing mind games here. This is not the Da Vinci Code. This is, <laughs> this is not national treasure. Like, it, it's, it's pretty patently clear, the parallels here, right? That Judah and Judas fulfill the same role over Joseph and Jesus, respectively. It's, it's phenomenal to me. Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver, which was the going rate for a young male slave in the second millennium B.C. But I'm struck by the fact that Joseph would foreshadow Jesus even in the way that he was forsaken, Look at how Joseph's story is more than a mere anecdote. It is a foreshadowing of Jesus and Jesus alone. Verse 35 brings up the first occurrence of a word that comes up 65 times in the Old Testament. Look at verse, look at verse 35. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Now, we will have time in the future to delve into this, and I've developed a graphic that uses all the various references to Sheol to explain exactly what's happening here, but let me just introduce the term here with the good faith understanding that I will unpack it in the future. The word Sheol refers to the afterlife. Its Greek equivalent is Hades. So Sheol and Hades were different language names for the same place. If you ask an Orthodox Jew where people go when they die today, depending on what sect of Judaism you ask, they'll give you varying answers. But the idea is that Sheol is the place of the dead. Sheol is the place where people went when they died. We see that there are two various experiences in Sheol. 
In Jesus' teaching, he describes one that is a very pleasant experience in the presence of Abraham himself. And then there's a large chasm within Sheol, separating a miserable experience down below. Then when Jesus is on the cross, he looks to the man next to him and says, today you will be with me in what? Paradise. And so from that point on, the curtain is torn, the covenant is fulfilled, and now the afterlife is forever changed. And a more current understanding of heaven is solidified with a prophetic understanding of heaven to come. The beautiful heavenly city, all of heaven and earth being made new. That's what's to come. But in the Old Testament, people both righteous and unrighteous went to Sheol. That's why Jacob Israel is saying, I will go down to Sheol where my son is. That's why David says, I will go down to Sheol where my dead son is. That's why, that's why Jonah says he goes down to Sheol in chapter 2. But that's also why the prophets say, you will not abandon your faithful one to Sheol. I will not remain in Sheol. There are two experiences in Sheol, and Sheol itself is a temporary, temporary experience. Ushered in complete revolution by the work of Jesus upon the cross. And foreshadowed by prophecies and revelation of a perfect heavenly city, a perfect new heaven, and a new earth that is to come. So, I wanted to introduce the term Sheol. I'll unpack it further in later sermons, but I wanted to introduce it now. Because as you work your way through the Old Testament, you're going to see it more and more. Just to clarify, that's what Sheol is. It's a place where people go when they die, both righteous and unrighteous. But there is a good experience, there's a bad experience. Upon the work of Jesus, then we see paradise and Gehenna. Now, I want to come back to the story of Joseph. Okay, here's here's how it ends. Joseph is the hero of the story. He hasn't really done anything wrong. He's got a little bit of a mouth on him. He's kind of spoiled, but he also has integrity and he speaks the truth. He says exactly what's on his mind. He's the good guy in the story. And then it ends like this. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. The end. Bummer. Goodbye. That's the end. Go beat the Baptists to Jimmy Max. The good guy got sold into slavery, thrown into a pit. God bless you. Get over it. See you next week. Is this, is this how the story ends? There's more to the story, isn't there? There's more to the story. There's more to the story. You gotta come back. You gotta join a group. You gotta read your Bible. You see what I did there? You got to come back. You got to see what happens with Joseph. You got to read the word of God. It's beautiful. And it's especially beautiful to those of you who are in the pit right now. Can I, can I encourage you for a second? I, look, I know that sometimes we wear it like a badge where it's like, I'm a curmudgeon and a sermon's only good if it discourages me. That's not biblical orthodoxy, okay? Like you, you, you know that I mean it, okay? You're, you're talking to a guy who preached about the Nephilim for crying out loud. So you can trust me when I encourage you. I wouldn't say if it didn't have biblical basis, this is not the end of Joseph's story. And it's not the end of your story either, Christian. This is not where your story ends, Christian. The devil does not get the final word on the child of God. This pit is not your name. And your downfall does not define you. The Lord is still good. You worship him while you're in the pit. Because he's worthy of worship there. And you worship him on the mountaintop because he's worthy of worship there too. And he's faithful. He will dig you out of that pit. 
And when he does, did you hear me say when, Christian? When he does, you'll have a testimony. Do you see what God did through Joseph's life and story? Look at this. He was on a trajectory to be in charge of his brothers. Hey, that's cool. But because he's in the pit, because he's sold into slavery, he is now on a trajectory to be in charge of all of Egypt. Look at what God did. Look at the parallels too. Jesus, likewise, they put him in the ground too. They put him in a tomb too. And like Joseph, he came out of it, amen? And when he came out of it, just like Joseph, he was in authority over the ones who crucified him, just like Jesus, amen? Now, look at this. Look at how the story, can I, I eat my dessert first sometimes? Can I go to Genesis chapter 50? Let's do it, look at Genesis 50. Chapter 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said to one another, if Joseph is holding a grudge against us, he will certainly repay us for all the suffering we caused him. So they sent this message to Joseph. Before he died, your father gave a command. Say this to Joseph. Please forgive your brother's transgression and in their sin, the suffering they've caused you. Therefore, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when their message came to him. His brothers also came to him, bowed down before him. See the fulfillment of that vision? And said, we are your slaves. Look at that. They mocked him. They mocked him originally. Pilate likewise mocked Jesus, put a banner over him saying, calling him king of the Jews. In verse 8, his brothers mocked Joseph saying, you're going to rule over us, you're going to be our king. And now here's the fulfillment of what was spoken over him. They are bowing down before him. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Therefore, don't be afraid. I will take care of you and your children. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. That's how the story ends. That's the next time Joseph, and that's the final interaction recorded in Scripture between Joseph and his brothers. And this is beautifully parallel to Jesus, likewise, who is in authority over those who crucified him. But he instead shows them grace and shows them mercy. He does not do to them what they did to him, but instead he takes care of them. He provides for them. He looks after them. What they intended for evil, God uses for good. What your enemies have intended for evil, God is going to use for good, Christian. He's going to use it for good. Look, listen to Romans 8, 37 through 39. We speak the truth of God's word over you. You Christians who are in the pit, listen to this. No, we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor powers, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You're in the pit, but that's not where you belong. You have a Savior, and his name is Jesus, and God is working precisely because of your affliction to bring about a testimony that could not have come about otherwise. I am struck by the beautiful perfection of the Word of God and its parallels and its relevance to where you are right now. Look at the striking parallels in the way that God worked through Joseph. Have I convinced you? Do you see that Joseph foreshadowed Jesus? There's more. There's more. He didn't just foreshadow him symbolically, literally, genealogically led to Jesus. Look at the story. Look at the genealogy. <laughs> this is incredible. So look, you see Israel. You see Jacob. These are his sons. Look, this, this is that dysfunctional family with scheme and plot 
with trickery and sex and scandal and betrayal. And look at the line that leads from Joseph to David. And the lines that lead to Joseph and Mary. And say his name. Where does it lead to, Christian? Jesus. Look at what God did through this dysfunctional family. All of the betrayal and the scheming and the plotting. Look at what God does. He brings about salvation through this corrupt family. In part because of this enslavement. Look at what God did through Joseph's corrupt brothers. What might he do through you? What might he do through your affliction? Literally, physically, this story leads to Jesus. It's far more than symbolism. It's far more than parallel. It's literal, actual background. This is the story of Jesus. It's the story of salvation. The same Jesus in whom you may believe right here and now. Is it possible that you've underestimated the Bible, my skeptical friend? I mean, look, I stand amidst the proof of its truthfulness and I proclaim it to you right now. And that sneaking suspicion that you have in your heart that the Bible is true, that it's actual, that it's, that it's, it's been translated accurately, that it's, its Holy Spirit is alive, that it is useful for teaching, rebuking, and training in righteousness so the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. That true Bible is reaching out to you now of nothing more than for you to give your life to Christ, not necessarily here at this altar, but that God would give you a special dispensation to let you speed home and get to your desk and clear the clutter and slam your Bible down and open and feast on the truth and the Holy Spirit of God would grip you by the heart and bring you to life from the death of your sin. I would love nothing more than for you to give your life to Jesus at your messy desk instead of here at this clean altar. The word God is living and active. Join us in our book by book journey through it. Read the Bible for yourself. Have I shown you Jesus in Genesis today? You gotta keep reading. He's everywhere. All of it casts his shadow and it is exquisite. All of it leads to Jesus. The whole Bible is one big story about Jesus. So my skeptical friend, the Holy Spirit is drawing upon your heart right now to place your faith in Jesus. I want you to pray with me right now to give your life to him. And I want to pray on behalf of Christians who have been like Reuben and trying to compromise. I want to pray for Christians who are like Joseph and you're in the pit. Let's pray together. Shall we pray? Let's pray. God, I pray on behalf of my skeptical friends who are just wrecked by the drawing of the Holy Spirit on their hearts right now. God, I believe that your Bible is true. I see it. I see Jesus foreshadowed in Joseph. I see how deep the roots of the gospel go. God, I believe that Jesus is alive. I believe that all these events led to his birth, and I believe that his life was perfect. I believe that he's the word of God himself, alive and living. I believe that he fulfilled prophecy, that he is the anointed one, that he's the Messiah, that he's the Christ, that he died upon the cross to atone for my sins and fulfill the Old Testament covenant law, and that he rose again three days later in victory. And so right here and now, face to face with the resurrected Jesus, confronted with the truthfulness of the word of God, I confess with my mouth that Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, say, Jesus is Lord. Say it, Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart 
that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Meet me there in that sacred place when I open up the word of God. Let your Holy Spirit be there, present, waiting for me, escorting me every minute in between to grip me by the heart with the truth of the Bible. Awaken within me the latent gifts of the Holy Spirit of God that I might serve in my church and bring revival to the Pacific Northwest, beginning in my own soul. God, save me. God, I want to pray on behalf of the Rubens in the room who are trying to make peace with the murderous mob and trying to secretly hold to their motives of faithfulness to you. God, God, would you give them boldness to speak the truth, to speak out on behalf of the oppressed? Lord, would they see the parallels, Lord, of Reuben in their own lives who compromise no longer. God, I want to lift up the Josephs in this room, the people who are in the pit, the Christians, the children of God who arrive down there in the bottom of the pit and go straight from the pit to the slave train. God, know that you are good and we worship you right here at the bottom of this pit and your Holy Spirit meets us here. You are worthy of worship. You are worthy of worship. When I win big and you are worthy of worship, when I'm here at the bottom of the pit, you are worthy and so I worship you, God. God, I know that this pit does not define me. I know that your love defines me, that your gospel defines me, that I am a child of the King. So God, I resolve to worship you here and I give this whole testimony to you. I cannot wait to see how you use this, God, because one day I'm gonna pass by similar pits and see other people in the bottoms of those pits. I'm gonna reach down and show them how you lifted me up out of my pit and how you're gonna lift them out of theirs. God, I'm gonna have a ministry because of this. So I'm gonna worship you in the meantime. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the beautiful truth of your word. Thank you, Jesus, for the gospel with its roots in Genesis. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.